Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Today, we're excited to welcome to the show one of the mental skills coaches from the Pittsburgh Pirates, Andy Bass. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So before we get into the academic side, your dissertation, and all your knowledge on, on uh, sports psychology, motor learning, I wanted to get into your career as a baseball player. I know you played collegiately at, at Davidson, and you pitched in the minor leagues. So uh, just first curious, what made you want to end your career as a baseball player? Uh, so it's a great question. Uh, the answer is that I didn't want it in my career. I was forced out. Um, I, I was released. And it happens to a lot of players I never thought I'd actually get the chance to play professional baseball, and that wasn't anything to do with confidence. Uh, I figured I'd be a good Division One player, I'd go to a good academic school, and I would enjoy my time. And come my uh, my junior and senior year, I thought I'd started throwing a lot harder. I was fortunate to get drafted by the Rays in 2011, and pretty much my first outing in pro ball, I got the yips. I threw 15 balls in a row in my first professional outing. It was it was quite embarrassing to say the least. Um, never quite recovered that season. I had a few decent outings, but it was it was pretty arduous. It was it was unfortunate. It was torture to be honest. To be afraid to play baseball, to be afraid to go to the park. So the Rays rightly released me at the end of that season, and. My ultimate goal to get back in professional baseball wasn't so much that I thought I could make the big leagues. Um, I more just wanted to prove to myself that I could overcome this mental block and not be afraid to pitch anymore. And I was lucky enough to get signed by the Chicago White Sox in 2012 and went to spring training with them. I never could quite get my velocity back for one reason or another. And they ended up releasing me um, right at the start of the season, and rightly so. I was not quite to the level that I was before I got drafted. But the thing that I really wanted to do was I my the last time I stepped on the mound for an actual game I wasn't afraid to pitch I was ready to go and I was happy to be out there and the thrill of of competition was was with me again so when they ultimately released me yes it was sad and yes I knew that my playing career was over but I'd set out what I accomplished to do and that was to find joy in the game again what's what would you say now like knowing more is like the technical term for the the yips and then is there anything that that coaches did do you think that kind of puts you in that mind space of having the yips? Yeah, uh, I think a lot of people probably describe the yips in different ways. I know it started in golf with golfers being unable to uh, hit a knockdown putt. The best way I would describe it would be a sudden inability to perform an automatic movement that you've done a thousand times, you know, a uh, an infielder not being able to throw to first base just out of the blue that has nothing to do with an injury or maybe something from a mental health standpoint. It's it's truly something that's based on the psychology of performance. And the second part of your question is I, I'm not entirely sure that the coaches uh, did anything that led to the yips. Um, there were some things looking back on it that maybe I perhaps wish some of my coaches had had done with me or for me. Uh, the the typical thing when somebody's going through this is to go mechanical, and unfortunately that's what happened when it was fairly obvious that I could not throw a strike. One of the first things that people did was go mechanics, go to video, um, go to drills, and that makes total sense because you're not throwing a strike, so it must be something physical. I think what would have been very beneficial for me is for somebody to sit me down and say, just 
ask me where I'm at, how am I feeling and what's going through your mind and what was it like when you went out there and you were uh, feeling good and you were able to throw strikes and how is that different from now? And I think that would have allowed me to peel the onion layer back a little bit to really d- dive into what was blocking me mentally from being able to throw a strike. And when you were really like kind of in deep with this and, and you know, doubting yourself and had a, a serious case of the yips, what what was it like, like going out there on the mound? What was it like in games? What did, I don't know, I guess take us through what it felt like. Uh, it was, it's, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff is going on in the world right now. So to say something is terrifying is probably a little, um, is minimizing what's going on. But it, it, in my life and what was going on then, it was absolutely terrifying. My hands would shake on the way to the ballpark if there was a chance that I could pitch, if a call came down to the bullpen or if a position player ran down to the bullpen to tell one of us to get hot, to start getting loose, to go into the game. Uh, it literally, it felt like my my chest was tightening up and um, I'd be out on the mound and there was one time it was so bad, I was just praying that they would take me out, that I would do so poorly that they would take me out because it was it was tunnel vision. I couldn't see anything. I could barely breathe. And yeah, it was life altering. I've if I could if there was anything like having a panic attack, it would it, I've never experienced a panic attack, but I would imagine that that what I felt was as similar to that as, as I've gone through in my life. That sounds awful. It was it was very it was terrifying, and looking back on it, um, I just wish that I'd opened up more and talked about it. I think a lot of times with the yips, there's this sense of, you know, if you don't talk about it, it'll go away. Uh, if you don't mention it, it'll go away. And um, yeah, I wish we had just been more open about it. Yeah, you're going through this. Let's figure it out instead of not talking about the elephant in the room. And then you said uh, towards the end of your career, you were more mentally strong, a little more confident on the mound. You didn't have that same fear. Um, but I'm sure it wasn't all, you know, perfect out there either. Were there times where you started to slip into that, that fear state? And I guess, how did you handle that with your new found like mental knowledge? Yeah, great question. And I definitely was more mentally strong than when I began, but I still had a long way to go. And certainly there were times if I was playing catch in the outfield, if I overthrew, uh, my throwing partner that the thought started in my head of, Oh my gosh, is this starting again now? you know, what now is this just going to snowball on me? Uh, so those thoughts would come in. And I think ultimately I wasn't to a point when I was with the White Sox where I could truly overcome that totally. I was working on it. Uh, but even now it's strange. I'll be, you know, during the season when there was a season, if I'm playing catch with, with a player or playing catch with anybody. And sometimes it'll just come back that kind of a thought in the back of your head it kind of feels like an itch where, Oh man, what's what's going to happen now? What's am I going to overthrow him? Am I going to underthrow him? And I don't know if I've necessarily gotten over it completely. Maybe it would have helped if I continued to play longer, but it's just a really weird condition, and it it's very pervasive. Have you had a chance to work with any players uh, in the Pirates organization through something like this? Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, there have been a few guys, uh, even some position players that. I've been able to work with how much I've been able to help them is would be their interpretation, but it has been kind of a nice pay it back, pay it forward circumstance for me where I can try to put my own spin on it and provide some empathy for them and, and even kind of think about what they're going through and maybe what I wished had happened and ask the kind of questions that I wish people had asked me. And, uh, you know, I have gotten some good feedback from those guys, uh, which is always, nice to hear. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a interesting and unfortunate challenge to work with guys that are going through the yips. 
Hmm. And I, um, I like the advice that you shouldn't ignore it and hope it goes away, but you should acknowledge it and maybe like look at some stuff to get over it. But, but when you're on the mound in the moment, in the heat of it, um, what's something you could do? Like if an athlete is struggling in that moment and it's not like a, after the fact, how can we evaluate this, but I need to throw this mm -hmm. next pitch. Yeah. Uh, so if I were to give an athlete any kind of advice for in the moment, um, the, I know that you all talked about, uh, the ideas of external focus of trying to get outside your body as much as possible. One, I guess you call it a trick one analogy or riddle that I've done with guys that have gone through this are I hand them an empty water bottle and I say, get the air out of here. And a lot of times they'll, you know, say stick a vacuum cleaner in it or they'll try to crush it as much as they can. And there's still air in there. And the answer to the question is fill it with water. And so one thing that I have uh, a strategy that I've tried to impart to certain athletes is if your mind is completely filled up to the top, to the brim with one conscious thought, and if that one conscious thought is perhaps an external focus, you know, through the mitt, through the mitt, through the mitt, or drive it up, drive it up, drive it up, it's very difficult for the negative thoughts, the negative aspects to creep in when your, your conscious mind is completely filled to the brim, just like that water bottle with one conscious external thought. That's a great idea. I love that. So, so you, you finished your career as a prof professional player, uh, not on your, not how you wanted to, not on your <laughs> terms, but, but it was ended uh, as a lot of people. And it's pretty cool that you got that opportunity to play at that level. Uh, and you decide to pursue your PhD in sports psychology and motor behavior. Was any part of you like, I want to be done with this and get out of sports? I mean, what made you want to go that route? Um, you know, the, the joke that a lot of people say with any kind of psychology is that you go into psychology to really figure yourself out. And what better realm to try to figure myself out than studying sports psychology and what I'd gone through. Mm. Um, so I, I was more at the, that point having a psychology and philosophy degree from a liberal arts school, which I wouldn't trade up for the world, but not a whole lot of jobs out there for that generic gener general degree. So I knew I needed to go back and, and get a master's and get a higher degree in something. And uh, my family helped me stumble upon this. And once I started reading about it, I just was blown away because um, sports psychology at that point, I'd heard about it. Um, I'd certainly read some books between the time I worked with the Rays and I played with the White Sox, but I never really thought about it as a, from an academic side. My, my school didn't offer that as a class because it was, it was a smaller school. But once I realized that this was an area of study, I was sold. So I fortunately, the University of Tennessee admitted me on a mid-year because I'd been released in the summertime. And when I got there and I I started to understand how the mind influences the body and the body influences the mind and the philosophy that that program took of incorporating motor learning with sports psychology, I was just over the moon at how interesting the, the entire domain was. Nice. And since most people uh, like John don't understand all the research and literature behind motor behavior, can you give sure. us can you give us the <laughs> simple view of maybe what coaches can be doing to maximize their practices? Yeah, um, that could certainly be a several hour long conversation. I've got a few just off the top of my head. Motor learning is such a weird term anyway. A lot of people, when I say that to they think I'm working on cars or I'm a mechanic. I like to describe motor learning as the psychology of human movement. So one um, one question to as a as any coach to think about is when you really want to dive into the motor learning is why are you doing things the way you are? Are we doing it simply because it's the way it's always been done, or is there a reason why we're doing this? So one particular aspect of coaching that I think we see a lot, and I, I know that volleyball has done a wonderful job of incorporating a lot of these concepts, 
we tend to think that with feedback that that more is more and we as coaches are really working hard when we're constantly providing feedback we're correcting we're jumping in we're interjecting and there's a, a concept called the guidance hypothesis which i'm not going to try to describe at least in academic terms here but it basically says that the more that we provide feedback to athletes it's almost working like those bumper lanes in bowling where if the bumper lanes are always up you look really really good you're never going to throw a gutter ball and if that's how practice is in the game the the bumper lanes are going to go down and if you've been practicing on bumper lanes the entire time, you're probably not going to be that good when they go away. So if, if a, as a coach, we're providing a ton of feedback constantly, all the time trying to correct, in the game, that feedback isn't going to be there. An athlete is probably going to suffer because of it, which is counterintuitive sometimes to how we think about learning. But with feedback, less is definitely more, and it can help the athlete start to become their own best coach. Uh, can you share some examples from baseball and how you you've strived to make changes from what's been done from a you know traditionally to more in line with what you've learned from motor learning research? Yeah, definitely. And I'll throw out a few terms here that are starting to become more buzzwords in the sporting community, and hopefully would provide some jumping off points for people to look into. But I think the two big motor learning concepts that people are starting to really start to put in the sports world are one is the constraints led approach, and one is differential learning, and what we're starting to see is that you don't ever repeat the same movement twice. It's virtually, it's physically impossible. So as a coach, we shouldn't strive for the perfect movement. We should strive for optimal movement. And we should also strive for athletes to be as in tune with the environment as possible. And one example that I've really enjoyed that we've been doing in baseball, at least with the pirates that I've seen, is there is a, a drill that's called uh, infield fungo. And the process of the drill is there's a coach that stands at home plate with a bat in his hand and a ball and all the infielders are around and the coach will toss the ball in the air and then he'll hit the ball to a player the way that this drill has normally been done is the coach will say okay third base we're gonna run a five four three double play which is third base throw into second base throw into first place for a double play now this is great then the coach will hit it roughly in the proximity of the third baseman who will then throw it to second throw it to first and it looks really good it looks really crisp looks really clean the big issue with this is that it's not taking into account how we process information. It's honestly taking out two of the three aspects of information processing. The first is what's happening, what's coming at me. It's called stimulus identification. The second is response selection. Okay, what's happening, what's coming at me, and what do I need to do about it? And the third is uh, movement programming, which is how do my muscles, how, do my, how does my body move in coordination to get this done, which is where strength and conditioning comes in. This traditional kind of fungo, this traditional kind of drill takes away definitely the first stage of information processing and more than likely the second because the player knows where it's going to be and knows what's going to happen. He can pre-program his movements. And that's, that's not a game like rep. So now in a game, he's in practice, he's only been forced to do at best two thirds of the equation, oftentimes just one third. And the game is requiring him to do all of it. And so what we have done with the Pirates, or, and I'm sure this is happening in other, uh, other baseball teams too, is the coach will stand at home plate and another coach will stand on the side of him and he will flip the ball to the coach. And the coach will then hit the ball out of the air. He won't tell the players where the ball is going. Sometimes he mishits it, but he'll hit it where he wants it to go, but he won't tell the players where the ball is going. He will just say the situation, man on first, one out. Now players are having to identify the stimulus, what's happening and what do I need to do with it? And that's incorporating all three stages that you see in motor learning of how to actively and efficiently, efficiently process information. 
That's great. It's a great example. And and let's say, can we take this example, say man on first one out and then bring in your feedback example? Like when you see one of your pirates coaches really pulling the bumpers, what would their, what would their feedback look like in, in that sort of situation? Um, well, feedback could be anything from how is your footwork or, Hey, make sure you're quicker with your hands there. Um, or even something, John, I know you've talked about, uh, with certain feedback of just kind of the, the shallow statements of attaboy or way to go. And there's no information in that. And the best thing that we can do if we have that feedback where it's, Hey, your feet were, you weren't on the bag at that point. Well, I'm sure the player knows it. And the other thing with feedback is we want to be careful about how, not only how often we provide feedback, but particularly in sports like baseball, where the, the plays happen and then the plays over, we can provide feedback too quickly. Um, when we provide that really immediate feedback, we can really interfere with the player's own internal feel. They aren't processing how their body is doing as well. So uh, what I'd love to see with our Pirates coaches is they're waiting a little bit. They're waiting two or three seconds or maybe till the ball is thrown back in before they say anything at all. Mm. So it's less of a knee jerk and giving the, the players a chance to reflect, recall, and then and then they can add something after all, that whole process has gone through. Exactly. Exactly. Just allow just a few seconds for the player to feel what just happened. Mm, that's great. Yeah. And that's interesting because you don't you want to go away from the attaboys and just the noise. But at the same time, if you're just stating the obvious, like you said, um, you know, that doesn't help the player too much either. Um, Correct. Yeah. Um, so if we, I'm sure baseball has a lot of tradition um, with drills like this. So how do you get coaches to buy in and get more comfortable doing more motor learning based drills. How have you found anything that it's helped them make the change? Yeah. And, and that's the million dollar question too, because a lot of these motor learning principles and to a certain extent, sports psych principles, they challenge a lot of coaching belief systems. And it's one thing to change an opinion. It's hard to change a belief. Uh, you just, we have, we have to be patient. Um, we have some very knowledgeable coaches in all sports and they kind of that expert without knowing model. And, asking questions, um, being patient, sharing space with them, validating where they're coming from, knowing that they've put a lot of time in knowing what they've known. And I think the more that we can empathize with how much work they put into understanding sport from this lens, it can be difficult for them to recognize that, not that they were doing things wrong, but that perhaps it can be more efficient. And sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow. So the more that we can validate and empathize with our coaches and simply ask questions without trying to go zero to 60, I think the more that we will create buy-in. That makes sense. And then um, the other part of your your degree and your your PhD was the sports psychology side. So how, how does how do these work together? How does the motor learning principles help train the the mental part of the game for players? Yeah, that's that's my most fun part. That's what gets me up in the morning is finding how these two work hand in hand. And uh, an example would be we, we want guys in any sport, we want athletes in any sport to be comfortable with failure where their confidence comes from their process and not their result. And when you look at the literature on motor learning, a lot of it says that yes, uh, an environment that has a significant amount of failure is where learning happens most often. And when we fail, our mind tends to race. We tend to have a ton of mind chatter, probably negative self-talk. Our confidence starts to fade away a little bit. And now that we're engaged in these motor learning principles and we're engaged in this kind of practice, hey, are, are you pissed off right now? Are you frustrated? Is this a tough drill? Yes, coach, it is. Okay, this is, this is good. How are you feeling? What, what's, your, what's your thought process right now? What are you, what are you telling yourself? 
And so now we've created a really game-like environment in practice where we can have these tough conversations with our athletes about where their mental game is versus a practice that has near 100% success rate. It's kind of hard to ask a guy if he has negative self-talk when he's succeeding all the time. Um, but then in the game, they're going to have a ton of failure and then they're going to be able to recognize where their self-talk is going because they've had that type of adversity in practice. And what about the flip side of that? Is there any issues with building a player's confidence when they're consistently in this tough game-like situation without the bumpers up, uh, versus more controlled, easy reps? There absolutely is. (laughs) Uh, that's absolutely a huge issue. And, to say that there's never a time for feel-good reps, I would say that's probably overshooting it a little bit. There's nothing wrong with having feel-good reps every once in a while. But if we can just structure practice, especially if players have had their entire career where it's feel-good reps, probably not the best thing for us to immediately go to a an atmosphere where they're failing 50% of the time. They're probably going to shut down. They're going to be in that fight-or-flight mode to just start introducing these certain aspects of failure where they start to kind of inoculize themselves to what failure feels like. And then after a while, we'll realize that their confidence is coming from their process and not from having to feel good and see that they're succeeding. So yeah, that's a, it's a huge uh, concern when it comes to introducing these principles, because yes, it's going to take a toll. It could take a toll on them mentally where now their confidence just plummets. It goes into the cellar. And the best way to do this, if we recognize our athletes and know our athletes, is to find ways to start introducing this slowly and then ramp it up where the player is becoming more aware of what failure means and how they can deal with it. Yeah, it makes sense to transition into it. I think I learned about this stuff and then it's like, okay, we got to do it right away and do it, you know, 110%, which uh, comes from a good place. But you got to realize you're working with uh, athletes who have you know, experience come from different experiences and, and learn in different ways. So it's, it's good to know your athletes. And that's why this next question, um, I'm asking you as if there's like one sort of athlete, but there isn't. So this is a hard question. Um, is, uh, but is there an area of the mental game that coaches can get the most bang out of their buck when working with athletes? Is that too broad? Oh, no. It, well, it, it's, it's certainly not too broad. I will put my own biases and opinion on this because I have no doubt that mental skills coaches and other and sports psychologists will have a different answer. For me, the, the mental skill that I felt like I got the most bang out of my buck for was self-talk simply because mine was so terrible as an athlete. And that's usually my go-to mental skill with guys simply because they're we are always engaging in self-talk. The amount of thoughts that we have a minute is staggering. Um, and that's one of the reasons why these motor learning concepts can help open the door to having a guy talk about his self-talk with a coach. What are you thinking right now? What are you saying to yourself? And, you know, we can kind of, I know you had uh, Dr. Bernie Holiday on uh, a few episodes ago. Are we talking to ourselves? Or are we listening to ourselves? And one of the things we need to start doing more is talking to ourselves and recognizing where that inner dialogue is. And that's usually where I go. And I feel that particularly in a sport like baseball, that has a lot of standing around where there's a lot of time for a player to really uh, stew in negative thoughts. That's where I tend to go with baseball. And it, it may be different for a, a sport that's quicker, more fast paced, like volleyball or basketball where it's more reactionary. For me, though, I tend to go to self-talk and trying to work with a guy to build up his own inner dialogue with himself. Do you ever find there's people who are too far the other way, like ir- irrational in the sense that they just think they're amazing all the time? 
Yeah. And um, <laughs> sometimes that can be good. Uh, sometimes denial is not just a river in Egypt, so you need to bring him back down to earth sometimes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, sometimes that is the case. And a lot of times you'll hear, well, the game will eventually kick him in the teeth. And if it never does, then that's great. You've got a one of 1% on your hands, a once in a generation athlete that's just that good. Um, but uh, one thing, one phrase that I've always really liked that I'll bring up with players is the first step to solving any problem is admitting that there is one. And if you truly think that your mental game is perfect, Let's let's talk about this a little bit. Is it always perfect? And let's find the times when maybe it's not. And then we can start to solve the problem from there because nobody's mental game is perfect. I don't think anybody's mental game ever will be perfect. Can you give us an example of what effective self-talk might sound like? Uh, sure. And I, when I talk about self-talk, I try to stay away from saying positive and negative self-talk, which I realized I've, I've said a few times so far. I try to stick with things like a beneficial self-talk versus detrimental self-talk. So... Um, one guy's self-talk, for me, may be negative in my mind, but for him, it works. And uh, another, uh, let's say, strategy that I bring up with guys is I talk about the silver rule, and I, I totally made that up. I think it actually means something on Google, but I use it in tandem with the golden rule. And the golden rule says, treat others as you would like to be treated. And the silver rule, from a mental game and from a self-talk standpoint, says, talk to yourself the way you would talk to others. So if your self-talk doesn't reflect how you would speak to a teammate, if a, I'm going to use baseball as an example, if a, if a pitcher just gave up a, uh, a walk-off home run, he just lost the game, you probably wouldn't go up to that, that individual, I would hope not, and say, wow, that was terrible. I don't know why you don't just hang the cleats up and get out of here right now. You would never say that to a teammate, but I would imagine that, and I know I felt it too, we say that a ton of times to ourselves. So it's a really good way to catch what is a what is beneficial self-talk for you. If, if you're the kind of player that's OK going up to a, a, another teammate and really getting on them in a beneficial way and saying, hey, man, let's go or hey, let's go. This is this is no time to feel sorry for yourself. If that's the kind of teammate you are, that's the personality you have, then that's the kind of self-talk you can have for yourself. Uh, so that's kind of the baseline that I like to use with guys on what or guys um athletes in general of what does beneficial self-talk look for you and typically it looks like the way that you would speak to other teammates when they're going through a tough time yeah that's a great one and then uh you mentioned how you incorporate some sports psych and self-talk into baseball because maybe there's some downtime how would you incorporate it into a faster paced sport like volleyball are there ways within a practice you can be working with the athletes on this uh yeah absolutely i think with when it comes to self-talk uh, particularly I would with a faster paced sport like volleyball and you'll have to forgive me. I'm not, I'm only familiar with the sport on a surface level, but because it's more reactionary, uh, I think bringing in self-talk that's more these external cues, whether it is something like next point or whether it's okay, bring bring focus to the serve or right now I'm on the serve or you know, I'm right here where my feet are. I'm just, I'm, I'm focused on this set right here. So perhaps maybe not as much deliberate conscious sentence statements like you would see in baseball, but just quick external cues that bring them back to the task at hand because in just a moment, action's coming back. And when, when do you spend the most time or when do you think coaches should spend the most time working on the mental game? Is it you know, in practice in this drill, that's our big focus is the mental game or is it more of like a, a classroom, like after practice, let's ref reflect and and go over these practices we can use? I think both. You don't know what you don't know, and there are times when athletes may not have a comprehension of what self-talk is, what is visualization, what is imagery, um, what, what does it mean to deal with nerves? And I think there are times when a, a 
I'm going to say typical, but let's say more of a classroom-like setting is necessary just to provide the foundation and education for athletes. For me, as they start to have an understanding of that, the best time to do it is a five-minute talk in between practice or maybe not even five minutes. Um, and that's where the learning concepts come in because you start to see where athletes are and how they're dealing with challenges when you truly engage them in, in things like random practice, contextual, uh, differential learning, when you have these high failure rate practices. Because in practice, it's the best time because in a game, uh, I one of my um, heroes of all time is John Wooden. And if, it's really neat to watch old photos of him and old videos of him in game. He never said a word most of the time. He just sat on the bench. And I think that's the proper way to take when you talk about the mental game sometimes is, yes, you can have certain bring bring an athlete back with, hey, make sure you're breathing or bring them back with a cue. But the best time to do this is to set these foundations during practice, during a difficult, challenging workday. And then before that, set the foundation with maybe typical classroom practices or classroom activities. Cool. And Andy, I know right now is kind of a unique time where a lot of athletes are quarantined and, and stuck inside, not able to practice. Do you have mm -hmm. any suggestions, recommendations, how we could be developing our mental game um, while maybe we don't have the chance to be hitting baseballs or spiking volleyballs? All right. And <laughs> just for, yeah, for the uh, yeah. athlete to be sitting at home, like, is there a way to be productive and to be working on this? I definitely think so, even though they may not be able to pair it from a standpoint of now I'm I'm on the court and I'm able to have this association, but there are tons of, ref of um, references online. I think practicing mindfulness is a wonderful thing to do during quarantine. It really helps you be where your feet are. There are thousands of YouTube videos looking at mindfulness and breathing techniques. Um, I also think that it's a great time to work on being okay with with stress of where are your stress signatures? This is, there's a lot of uncontrollables going on right now. Where does your mind go when stress happens and how are we as coaches, as athletes dealing with that stress? And that can really start to help us discover more about ourselves. Even if it's not in an exact sporting environment, we're starting to figure out more about where our mind goes when a lot of these emotions are stirring up. Billy, get on it. On it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Coach Your Brains Out by Gold Medal Squared. That was part one with Andy Bass. Andy will be back next week to talk about autonomy. You better be there. I mean, it's up to you. Your decision. Whatever you think is best. <laughs>